the greatest privilege, perhaps, of being a human being is that you are built with the capacity and the ability to love and to know love and to be loved. There is no other creature in all of the world that buys anniversary presents, that buys Valentine's chocolate, that surprises the significant other with a bouquet of flowers, that keeps pictures to remember all of the sentimental moments of the history of your family and the history of your marriage. Only human beings do that. Only human beings are built with this unique and profound, supernatural even, capacity to love, to be loved, and to know love. Of last year, in around March, April, I had traveled a lot, very similar to recent, the way it's been over the last couple of months. But I'd been on a mission trip in Salt Lake City, and then I'd come back, and uh, I was here a week, but I had late night meetings pretty much every night that week. And, so, and then the very next week, I left and went to seminary. And so Gracie, who at the time was about two and a half, um, had really not seen me very much, and she was just getting to that place in her life, you know, where she really recognized the absence of dad, that dad is not here, that me and dad used to go to the woods, and me and dad go fishing, and dad's just not here to do all of that stuff, right? And so I had gotten incredibly, incredibly homesick um, by the last night that I was in seminary, and so my class was over at 9 p.m., and so I decided I was going to go straight back to the hotel, go to sleep, and I was going to wake up first thing the next morning early and uh, get home to see if I could surprise Gracie as early as I could because I was missing her. And so I woke up at 4 or 5 that morning, got up and drove from, from Louisville all the way back, and uh, I got to her sitter right around lunchtime. And of course, Gracie's the only one in the room that's not, or the only one in the house that's not asleep yet. She's the one that's, uh, and so the, the sitter had asked, you know, let me go and get Gracie so that, uh, so that you don't wake up the other kids. And I said, that's fine. And I hear the pitter-patter of her feet coming down the hall. And you just know what that does to a homesick um, family missing dad. You, you hear those little feet pitter-pattering down the hall. And your heart just begins to feel like it's just going to explode, right? Finally, I'm back here with my little girl. And so Gracie, her normal fun-loving self is coming back, and she's talking, blah, 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 you know, like she does, like you guys know, and she's just talking, 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 and she gets to the doorway, and she sees me, and her whole countenance falls, and she begins to just sob and run at the same time, and so she's, she's crying, and she's running, and she runs up to me, and she wraps her little arms around me, and she says, Daddy, I miss you so much. And so I picked her up, and I'm hugging her, and she, she takes me, and she pushes back, and she'll look at me, and she'll pull me close again. She pushed me back, look at me, and pull me close again. And she said, I thought you was mommy. <laughs> and to my knowledge, that is the first time in my little girl's life that she cried happy tears. And to my knowledge, that is the first time in my little girl's life that she knew what it meant to experience the joy of reconciliation, of being back together again, right? It's a moment I'll never forget. 
But she is built for love, and I am built for love. And the only reason that that moment brought both of us joy, the only reason that that moment was this profound moment for each one of us, is because both of us were built for the sake of love and to appreciate love. As Christians, we know the greatest love there is to know. As Christians, we know the love of a redeeming, adopting, electing, loving Father. Who says it doesn't matter what's in your past. It doesn't matter what's in your mind. It doesn't matter what your last name is. It doesn't matter what your story is. I want you. I desire you. And so he pours out his love on us. That brings me to a profound question I think that we have this morning. If we are Christian, as Christians, are those that have experienced the greatest love there is to experience and know the greatest love that there is to know, should we as the church not be famous for our love? Should we as the church not be famous for our love for one another? Should we as the church not be famous for our love of the world? Should we as the church not be famous for our love of our Heavenly Father? But I bet if we did an interview of the people in our community, and we did an interview at the Oxford Exchange or wherever, and we were to ask them, what's the very first thing that comes into your mind when you think about love, uh, when you think about the church, I bet we would not hear one single time them say love. Brothers and sisters, if you have your Bibles with me, uh, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. As we see this morning, why it is that love is not an option for us as the children of God. Would you stand with me as we prepare to read Ephesians? We'll actually begin in chapter 4, verse 31. It's a good time for me to remind you that the verses and the chapter divisions in your Bible are not inerrant. They are arbitrary, they are helpful, they're good for reference points, but some of them are, are a little shaky. They were given by, I think, a German man, uh, and that German man was not the Holy Spirit, all right? He is not in error. So, we're going to start in chapter 4, verse 31, and go to chapter 5, verse 2. God's Word says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. So in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 God's word really says something that is utterly astounding. The, the words that Paul uses are intended, I think, to stop us in our tracks. As Paul looks at us and he states it in imperative form as a command. This isn't an option, this isn't a suggestion, this isn't a maybe. He looks at us and he says, be imitators of God. Be imitators of God. Now that's weighty. That's heavy. Be imitators of God. But he says, be imitators of God as beloved children. See, I think what Paul is saying is this. Is that as those who are the children of God, 
we should reflect the character of God. As the children of God, we should reflect the character of God. All of us knows this to be true of children, don't we? We know that typically, if you want to know about the character of the parents, you can look at the character of the children. That the children reveal and indicate something about their parents. And I see some of y'all getting nervous. Y'all getting nervous. It's all right. They're going to mature. They're going to grow up. They're going to love Jesus. We believe that. But loud children come from loud families, don't they? Y'all want to know why Gracie's so talkative? Y'all want to know why every time she's walking down the halls out there, everybody knows where she is? Have you ever heard me? I'm not a subtle fellow. Quiet children come from quiet families, don't they? Generous children come from generous families. Materialistic children come from materialistic families. Hot-headed children come from hot-headed families. Mild-mannered children come from mild-mannered families. Children are built and intended by God to reflect the character of their families. And so what Paul is saying is that this should be the case in the life of a Christian. If we are God's beloved children, if we are his, should we not reflect his character? Should we not be those that look like him and seem like him and sound like him and walk with him and walk among the world as he would walk through Christ? You know, what he's not saying here though is just as important. What Paul is not telling us to do is to try to pick ourselves up by our bootstraps and make sure that we look like God in some way. The thing that he is not, this is not intended to be a burdensome or overbearing command. You can see that because it's surrounded by positive language, right? Paul doesn't say, therefore be imitators of God to the best of your ability as hard as that is. He says, be imitators of God as beloved children. That this isn't something that's supposed to overwhelm us with a burden. That this isn't something that's supposed to be so inconceivable that we can't get there. No, I think what Paul is showing is that as the children of God, this should be a natural outworking of who we are. That this should be the, 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 the natural outworking and the natural overflow of who we are as his children. That as we grow in Christ, we should become naturally, it should become more and more natural for us to imitate God and to model God's character in our life. You know, I, I found it to be more and more true that I am a lot like my dad. I can't stop it. I can't get away from it. I can't hide from it. I'm just going to embrace it, man. That's all I know to do. You can't, you can't fix it. You, you just are who you are, right? And I've, you, sometimes I do things and I, and I say things and I'm like, oh my gosh. That was, that's Jimmy Hale. That's Jimmy. How did that happen? And even maybe more scary and more humbling is I see the same thing coming true about Gracie. She gets frustrated. She'll be working on something, and she'll be working and working and working and working, and she'll be trying to she, these little, you know, trying to put her little toys together or something like that. And eventually, she'll become so frustrated, and she goes, Ugh! and she'll just walk away. I do that, and I look at her, and I think, Oh Lord, 
help this child. Help her. But you know, I don't try to be like my dad. It's not something I'm consciously attempting to do. It's not something I'm working at doing. It just naturally happens. It just naturally works itself out into my life. I can't stop it if I want to. Gracie is not intentionally trying to be like her dad. She's not intentionally working to try to reveal the character of her dad. It's just the character of her dad is implanted in her. You see, I spent so much of my childhood admiring my dad and respecting my dad and wanting to be like my dad and thinking that my dad was the coolest guy I had ever met in my life and seeing the way he carried himself and did things that spending the time with him, admiring him, respecting him, shaped my character. It shaped who I would become as a man. It shaped who I would become as a husband. It shaped who I would become as a father. And I suppose the same is already true of Gracie in some sense. Brothers and sisters, this is how it should look for us in our relationship with our Heavenly Father. We should spend so much time in admiration of him. We should spend so much time living out this respect and being in awe of him and, and living in reverence to him. We should spend live in so much awe of just all that he does and who he is in his character and in his attributes and in his glory. That just the natural outworking of how it happens is it shapes who we are as men and women. It shapes who we are as people. It shapes the way that we live and the way that we operate and the way that we think and the way that we see the world, the way that we father or mother our children, the way that we are a husband or a wife to our spouse. That as we pursue the Lord and as we spend time with the Lord, it profoundly shapes our character to imitate the Lord. See, there are no shortcuts to godliness. You don't drift into godliness. You don't drift into imitating God. You don't just wake up one day and there you are. You imitate God in your life. No, the only pathway to godliness is through spending time with God. It's the only way. Have you ever been around someone that you know spends time with God? Have you ever just spent time with someone that you know is a person that spends a lot of time with God? Uh, in, your, in their life, they don't walk in arrogance, do they? They walk in humility. They aren't prideful people. Instead, they are filled with the fruit of the Spirit in their life. You find mercy and joy and peace and gentleness and kindness and, and love. Their life is profoundly marked by the time that they have spent with God, so much so that their love for Him and their admiration of Him and their desire to be like Him just flows out of who they are. You see, we are like these little bitty cups. And God is this endless fountain of love, right? God is this endless fountain of grace. God is this endless fountain of glory. And as his children, he's just pouring it into these tiny little cups. And he's pouring it into these tiny little cups. And it's just overflowing everywhere. Do you spend time with God? Do you spend time with God? It says something about your respect of him. It says something about your admiration of him. 
the amount of time that you spend. Do you spend enough time with God for it to profoundly affect your character? For it to profoundly affect who you are as a man or who you are as a woman? What Paul is also not saying here is Paul is not saying that we should imitate God so that we might be his children. Paul is not saying that if you will imitate God, and if you will love God, and if you will live like God, then God, you will become God's beloved children, is he? No, he's saying the, he's saying the opposite. He's saying because God has already decided that he loves you. Because God has already expressed this insane, infinite love toward you. Because you are already God's beloved children, go and imitate him. Go and live like him. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. The gospel does not say work harder, do better, imitate God so that God will love you. The gospel says instead work, love, and live freely because you have already been loved by God. Turn with me to the beginning of Ephesians in chapter 1. We're actually going to talk a lot about this in this passage in a few weeks when we get into our Advent series leading up to Christmas. But really, you can't understand anything in the book of Ephesians without first understanding chapter 1 and the truth that we're going to talk about a little bit here this morning. That what Paul establishes in chapter 1 is what he's coming back to at the beginning of chapter 5. So read, let's read together verses 3 through 6. God's word says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Do you hear what this is saying? Are y'all reading this with me? Before the pillars of the earth were sunken, before the oceans were dug, before the mountains were built, before the birds were flying or the fish were swimming. You know what it says? It says God decided to pour out his adopting love on you. That before the foundation of the world, God chose you. You, the people of God, the children of God, are the chosen of God. That forever God has decided before anything happened, before anything was, before there was Adam or Eve or a serpent, before there was cancer or AIDS or child pedophiles, before anything entered the world, God decided he would love you. He would love his church. He would love his people. Regardless of what's in your history, regardless of what's in your story, he already knew what it would be, declaring the end from the beginning, and he decided to love you. It's justification. That God made you right with himself. God made it through Christ Jesus so that you, it was as if you had never sinned, and at the same time, as if you had always lived faithfully, perfectly obeying his law. God justified you before himself as his children. 
And it says that he adopted you. He adopted you. God adopted you because he wanted you. Nobody adopts out of obligation. Nobody adopts accidentally. Nobody is surprised by an adoption. Adoption is willing. Adoption is purposeful. Adoption is intentional. God didn't save you by accident. He came looking for you. He came pursuing you. He came after you because he loves you. Notice what he says at the end of verse 6. This is insane. It says, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. All right? You see the word beloved? Circle that word. Now turn back with me to chapter 5. Verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as whom? As beloved children. Circle again the word beloved. Are you getting this? God describes you in the same, with the same word that he uses to describe his son. That Paul understands that because of the work that Christ has done, because he has justified us, because he has made us right with God, that we can be described with the same adjective, with the same word used to describe the perfect son, the perfect sacrifice, the great high priest, the great shepherd, the Messiah, the long-awaited one, the fulfiller of prophecy, that he is the beloved, and in God's eyes, because of the work of the beloved, now we are the beloved. Us. We are porn-watching, lustfully thinking, self-consumed fools. And yet Paul, Paul looks at us because of the gospel and he says, You are now the beloved of God. You are beloved. The picture brings into my mind something that I learned about when I was in South Africa. In South Africa, there's an, there's an epidemic there of people disposing of children often what will happen is the mom will, who is eaten alive with HIV most likely her, herself or already has more kids than she can control or doesn't have enough money and food and provisions to care for the child will often take a, her newborn baby born out in a street somewhere put wrap it in a plastic bag and then throw it in a garbage can in, jo in the city of Johannesburg alone three babies are disposed of every single day this way. And so there was a pastor there who was deeply and profoundly burdened by this. And so what he did is there was this wall, and he cut a hole in this wall, and he put a door. And on the other side of the wall, he put a, a, a baby crib and a heat lamp to keep the baby warm and, um, and a bell so that when the mom would, could open this door and she could place her newly born baby inside of this, this window and it would ring a bell and someone could, a caretaker could come and get the baby to make sure that the baby was cared for. <laughs> Over a thousand babies have already been saved this way because of the work of these people. So the mom can do it and it's, it's completely consequence free. But my friend who, who had been there and is a part of this ministry began to tell me about one little boy. They found this little boy and he had already been thrown into the garbage can. 
But someone had happened by, I think someone from the ministry had happened by, and they, they heard this baby crying from within this dumpster. And so they, they dug it out underneath all the stuff and they got it. While the baby had been in the dumpster, rats had eaten away his ears and eaten away his nose. And so he was terribly and horribly deformed. My friend said, though, that among all of the children at the orphanage there, he was just particularly bright. He was just an, had an exceptional personality and an, an exceptional mind. And so he grew, and people loved him. And, they would, and, and so my friend said that one night they have him, they have a small group at their house, and they all just gather around this precious little boy, and they lay hands on him. And they are weeping as Christians, pleading that God would somehow uh, adopt him or that God would somehow do a work in his life because their assumption was is that he was so badly deformed that no one would ever want him, that no one would ever be willing to take him into their home. One day, a man and his wife fly in to Johannesburg from the UK for the purpose of adoption. And they go to this ministry. And the man walks into the room. The man and his wife walks into the room. And all of the children are there. And he looks and he says, I want that one. Talking about the badly deformed boy. My friend said that this man could hardly maintain his composure as he was sobbing and weeping. And he said, my whole life, God has been preparing me to adopt this little boy. You see, I am a renowned uh, plastic surgeon. All of my training, all of my background, everything in my history allows me to completely transform this little boy's life into a normal little boy. I can fix his face. I can fix his ears. I can make all of this appear as though it never was. You understand this is the picture of the gospel. Every single one of us are rat-eaten, disposable orphans born into this world to die without a hope at all until our heavenly Father comes and with his redeeming, adopting, transformative life, looks down at us as bankrupt sinners and says, I can make him well. I can have him into my house and everything about me will be given to him and he will be utterly transformed into something new. Brothers and sisters, should we not be walking billboards of the grace and mercy of God? Should we not live with a love that is profound and unique, having experienced such love? This is Paul's point. This is what he's getting to when he comes into verse 2. He says, and coming out of that, and walk in love. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Paul's point is this, as those that have received extravagant love, as those that have received unwarranted love, as those that have see, received unfair and unjust love because of what we've done, we should now walk in love. We should be those that lives our lives and walks in our lives as those that people are drawn to because of the way that we love people and the way that we love each other. That our life should be characterized by a love that is just as scandalous and just as extravagant and just as generous and overwhelming as the love that Christ has shown us. 
I think particularly, though, he's talking about the love in the church. He's talking most specifically here about the way Christians are to love one another. And I say that because in verse 1 of chapter 5, he says, therefore, right? Therefore means we're looking back to what's just been said. So in verse 32, what has he just said? Be kind to whom? One another. Tenderhearted, forgiving whom? One another. As God in Christ forgave you. I think what he's most clearly saying is as his children, as those that have been adopted into the household of God, that among the household, among our adopted brothers and sisters, there should be a distinctive love for each other. There should be a distinctive care for one another. We are all God's beloved children. We are all God's adopted children. We are all rat-eaten, disposable orphans delivered and overcome into the transformed children of God. We should love one another. And I chose this passage very purposely because today is Field Fest. And maybe you you say, well, shouldn't we be talking about loving the world? Shouldn't we be talking about loving our neighbor? Shouldn't we be talking about loving our community? We are talking about that. And here's why, why I say that. Do you remember why Jesus commanded us to love one another? In John 13, Jesus commands us to love one another so that the world will know we're his disciples. Jesus commanded us to love one another so that we might come together collectively in unity and be a light on a hill for our community. Jesus commanded us to love one another because it was that love that would set us apart from the despair of the world and cause people to be drawn to us and drawn to the church and by default drawn to the gospel. You see, two of our core values are to love one another and to dine with sinners. And what I want you to see is that those two core values are connected to each other. That by loving one another, we are more effective in dining with sinners. By loving one another, we are empowered to dine with sinners. See, loving one another is filled with world-reaching power. We miss this as the church. We miss this as the church. Loving one another is filled, our love for one another is filled with world-reaching power. Think about it like any family you know. Like any family you know. Have you ever went into someone's home and you weren't really sure if the people there liked each other very much? I have. And it is awkward, right? Awkward. You, you, you walk into some homes and immediately you're just, you, you, you sense the tension that's in the home. You sense the tension between the husband and the wife. You sense the tension between the, the parents and the children. You walk into the home and it's just uncomfortable. And it's just, it's, it's not warm, right? Because it's the love for one another that creates the warmth of the home, isn't it? And so you can go into that home and they can be perfect hosts. They can, they can be hospitable. They can give you good food to eat. They can have fun things to do. They can be good conversationalists. You can have all of those things. And yet still, at the end of the night, you can't wait to get out of there. Why? It's not warm. It's not hospitable. It's uncomfortable. You got drama in your life already. You don't need to bring in theirs, right? You got troubles in your own life. You got tension in your own life. Why in the world would you want to go to a place for leisure that's going to invite more tension? The same can be said about our church. 
I don't believe this is where our church is, but the same can be said about any church. That our hosts can be the best hosts in the world. They can open the door, take people to their cars with umbrellas. They can be hugging, laughing, all that kind of stuff. And our hosts do a great job. This can be, uh, they can be very hospitable as people walk in. Our security team can be killing it out in the parking lot, making sure that everybody is safe and everybody is finding the buildings that they need and, and making sure that everybody is getting to where they need to go. The, the message can be interesting. The, the music can be compelling. But if people come into our church and people come and are around our church family and they sense tension and they sense awkwardness and they sense a lack of love for one another, this place is going to feel cold. This place is going to feel cold. You see, we've got to love one another in such a way that it is magnetic to the people that come here. We've got to love one another in such a way that it fills this place with warmth and receptivity. Hospitality is not something that you can just do. Hospitality is something that has to be cultivated, and it's cultivated through love. This should be the warmest place that the people in our community have been all week long. I don't know how many is going to come today. We, we, we all know it's a little bit different. But as people walk among our campus and as people mingle among our people, this should be the kindest, friendliest, warmest, most loving place that any of them have been all week. They aren't looking for drama and they aren't looking for tension. They aren't looking for somebody just trying to get through an activity to the end of the day. They're looking to come and be loved on and have their kids loved on. And I'm telling you the direct correlation is by how profoundly and deeply and clearly we care about each other. That it's by our love for one another that they will know whether or not we're his disciples. It's by our unity with one another that they will be able to have any picture of all of our unity in Christ. Our love for each other is the proclamation of the gospel. Our love for one another in the church is what God uses most often to draw people to the church. Let's love one another excellently today. Let, let, let's, let's continue to grow in this together. Let's continue to, to press on in this together. Press on in the gospel together. Now how does that look? What are we to do? I think that's what he's telling us in verses 31 and 32. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And so he says, all of these malicious things that you do, all of these mean-spirited things that you do, all of these fleshly things that you do, all of the gossip, all of the slander, all of the, the backbiting, all of the negativity, let's put that off. Let's get rid of that junk. We don't need that here. And instead, be kind to one another. Tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Three simple applications. Three simple ways that we can demonstrate the love of God. That we can be imitators of God in his character as his beloved children. Be kind to one another. You know what kindness is? Kindness is the expression of love. That's what it is. Kindness is where love finds action. Kindness sees need and love motivates to express and meet the need, right? Kindness is when we know someone is struggling and we go and we wrap our arm around and say, man, I'm in this with you and I love you and I got your back. 
Kindness is where love is expressed, where love is demonstrated. Can you imagine going to a place like the early church? In the early church, when people had need, you know what they did? They went and sold their property. Say, hey, you, you need some food? You need some food? I got a car I can get rid of. I got a car I can get rid of. That, that'll set you up for a while until we can get you back on your feet. Oh, your kids, you, you've been thrown out into the streets because you follow Jesus? I tell you what, I, I've, got, I've got some property over here. I can sell that and, I can, and we can get you a place to live. Or we can maybe set you a place up to live on that property. I dream of us being that kind of church. I dream of us being a church that's not kind in words, but kind in life. Kind in actions. Can you imagine coming and gathering together with a group of people that you just don't even know that day how some random act of kindness is going to be demonstrated? Can you imagine coming and worshiping with brothers and sisters, people that are fellow beloved, and you're anxious to come to worship because that day you know that you're going you're gonna to demonstrate to them some kind of kindness that they're not expecting, and you just, you just can't wait to see the expression on their face. I think that's God's vision for the church. I think that was Paul's vision for the church. It would be a place of kindness where, where love isn't just talked about and mentioned, it's expressed. He says, be tender-hearted. Be tender-hearted. Being tender-hearted is the opposite of being harsh, isn't it? You go into some homes and to some families, and the people are just harsh with one another, aren't they? I've been in places where the way the man talks to the wife, I just want to punch him in the face. You need to be toting a fat lip to be talking to a woman like that. And those are places that you want to get out of. The church is a place where we should be tender with each other. One piece of the fruit of the Spirit is gentleness. It's gentleness. It's to show kindness with one another. It's to not hide the truth, but not to be a jerk about the truth either. It's to be, be, be gentle and, and to nudge one another along with, with tenderness, to, to move one another along gently so that we can grow together, and so that we can be unified together. It's not saying everything that's on your mind. It's not verbalizing every opinion that you have. Proverbs says that people that have to vent and express their opinions always are fools that we shouldn't listen to anyway. No, it's being tender to the spirit of the person. It's being tender to the needs of the person. It's being, being tender to, to rebuke and to, to share God's word and to teach even hard truths, but to do them in gentleness and grace. But the most dramatic and strongest of what he says is what he says at the end. When he says in, that we should forgive one another as God in Christ forgives you. Throughout the New Testament, the standard of forgiveness is Jesus. That as Christians, we are to live in such a way that we seek out opportunities to demonstrate the radical forgiveness of Christ. Practically, I think this can, this, there's two things I think we can focus on in our church. And how we can foster, how this forgiveness empowers us, and how this forgiveness changes us. Number one is we as Christians should not be easily offended. We as Christians should not be easily offended. We are those that have brought great offense to God. We are those that, have, that were incredibly separated from God and, and, and living in rebellion to God. And yet God showed us grace and mercy and forgiveness. Forgiveness empowers us to say, hey, I don't really like the way you said that, but man, it's all right. We're, we're good. 
forgiveness. It's putting your forgiveness on the table right out of the gate. And saying, I'm not going to take everything everybody says at all times of life so seriously that I live miserably and mad at everybody all the time. Christians should be the hardest people to offend on the earth. I've told you guys before, and I'll keep telling you, the only way that sinners can coexist under one roof is with grace. By showing grace to one another. By being kind to one another always. By being willing to forgive one another. By, by being slow to take offense to one another. The second way I think we can really apply that, apply the forgiveness of Christ to our church and to our love for one another is to not hold grudges. To not hold grudges. This is what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is to forgive an offense, to forgive a grudge. There is no room for grudges in the heart of a forgiving person. There is no room for grudges in the midst of the gospel. Jesus says that if you're going to offer a sacrifice and you realize that your brother has something against you, leave it there and go be right with your brother first. Then revival would break out if that happened. Revival would break out. If you realized that you had brought offense to someone and you went and you asked for forgiveness, revival would happen. If someone has deeply wounded you and you're carrying a burden and you're carrying a grudge, if you went to them and said, man, I forgive you and forgiveness is there and we are right and we are okay, revival would happen in the church. Evaluate the forgiveness that you've been given in Christ. Because grudges paralyze you. Grudges paralyze you. They make you in completely incapable of honoring Christ with your life. They drain from you the joy of serving in the church. They drain from you any even desire to want to serve in the church. This morning, be forgiving and be forgiven. Those things are always hand in hand in the gospel. Amy Carmichael exemplified this type of love. In the 40, 30s, 40s, and 50s, she was a missionary in India. She built an orphanage, and she began to take in children that had been um, purposefully adopted and even stolen so that they could go and in the false god temples be used as child prostitutes. And so she took in literally hundreds of children over the course of her ministry and would, would bring them in, and she would give them a place to to be loved and cared for. She died when she was 83, and just before she died, she asked that they not put a stone or a, uh, over her grave or an engraving, but the children that she cared for decided that they had to. And so they, instead of putting a stone, because she'd asked them not to, they put a bird bath over her grave. And on the bird bath was carved one word, Amma, which means mother. Carmichael's life saying was, one can give without loving, but one cannot love without giving. One man said at the conclusion of her life that her life was the most fragrant, the most joyfully sacrificial that I ever knew. Paul says that if we will live like this, if we will love like Jesus, if we will forgive like Jesus, be tenderhearted, be kind like Jesus, then like Christ... Our lives will be a fragrance, a pleasing fragrance into the nostrils of God. May we love like this, Iron City. Let's pray for you this morning.